Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Jacob chapter 4 The writings in this chapter come at the end of Jacob's great temple sermon, and they provide us with an introduction to the olive tree allegory, which Jacob will present in chapter 5. For this reason, and because of the subjects that chapter 4 covers, it is something of a transition chapter. Chapter 4 provides a new layer of familiar teachings, but from a new voice. Jacob will reinforce Nephi's earlier teachings regarding the purpose and the power of the Word of God, or the words of Christ, the centrality of his atoning act, where he paid our debt, and the destiny of his covenant people. At the end of this chapter, Jacob will introduce the subject of chapter 5, this olive tree allegory, with a question regarding the Jews. He will say in verse 17, How is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it that it may become the head of their corner? That metaphorical question will be answered elaborately and broadly with the use of an entirely new metaphor or allegory, which is presented then in Jacob chapter 5. As we look at the structure of this chapter, we find that in verses 1 through 10, Jacob provides us with a general discussion of his word and what it is that they will do. He phrases it in terms of what this word will give our children in verse 2, and then lists several things, including in verse 2, that they will get a small degree of knowledge concerning us or concerning their fathers. And in verse 3, that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither contempt concerning their first parents. In verse 4, we learn that the benefit of this word upon Jacob's posterity will be to teach them that we knew of Christ and had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming, which is a, a fascinating point that we'll come back to, and we'll talk more specifically about the law of Moses. And uh, Jacob will help us a great deal with that, including in verse 5, where he says, For this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him, meaning to Jesus Christ. Just as Nephi spoke at the end of his record of the weakness of the written word compared to the power of the spoken word when spoken by the power of the Holy Ghost and having it be carried unto the hearts of the children of men, we have Jacob talking about this same weakness in verse 7. Like Nephi before him, and like Moroni will do in Ether chapter 12, Jacob then talks about a compensatory power that can come through the grace of Jesus Christ, where weaknesses such as this can be overcome, and of course, to use Moroni's language, can be turned into strengths. Since the gift of the Holy Ghost and revelation is key to this process where readers can overcome this weakness by receiving the word through the power of the Holy Ghost, Jacob urges us in verse 8 to despise not the revelations of God. In this same verse and then continuing on in verses 9 and 10, Jacob reinforces the miraculous power of the Lord to do such things and to reveal things to the children of men. This should lead one to conclude, as Jacob says in verse 10, that the correct order of things is to seek to take counsel from the Lord's hand 
rather than to counseling the Lord. Then we find Jacob doing something very special in verses 11 through 13, and we discover that what he is talking about was common knowledge to other great prophets of his era. He speaks of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and in fact, in verse 12, he poses the question, why not speak of the atonement of Christ and attain to a perfect knowledge of him? Then, just as Nephi discussed the process of attaining plainness through revelation, Jacob talks about coming to a point where we see things as they really are, and that this is a function of the Holy Ghost, saying in verse 13 that the Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not, wherefore it speaketh of things as they really are, as though this is Jacob's way of addressing the issue of plainness. Then, having discussed the law of Moses in some critical and interesting ways for us, Jacob will move into the subject of the Jews in verse 14. He'll tell us, using very strong language, he does not equivocate, while he makes it clear that there were those who lived the law of Moses like himself, who absolutely did look forward to Christ and had an understanding of him, there most certainly were those who became blind from looking beyond the mark. And he explains this in great and clear detail in verse 14. Once he explains this, Jacob poses two questions, really. The first question is kind of implied, which is, how can the Jews recover from this? And then recalling what it is that Nephi has taught in the past, knowing full well from reading Nephi's record, that the Jews will have an opportunity in the latter days to be rescued by the Gentiles. Jacob will then ask the, the more explicit question, which we find in verse 17, which is something of a setup for the olive tree allegory which is to follow, where he says, How is it possible that these, the Jews, after having rejected the sure foundation, and of course that is Christ, can then ever build upon it that it may become the head of their corner? Jacob refers to this question in the last verse of the chapter as a mystery, and he says, I will unfold this mystery unto you. That is the preface, then, in a way, or the setup for Jacob chapter 5, Zenos's great olive tree allegory. But he ends by saying and reminding us that the key to having this mystery unfolded is the receipt and the continued reception and the continued companionship of the Holy Ghost, because he says that the only way that he can do this is if he does not get shaken from his firmness in the Spirit, and, as he says, stumble because of his over-anxiety for you, he says. With that overview of the structure of this chapter, let's return to the first section and to verse 1, where we will talk more generally about these words, and that's kind of the way that the previous chapter ended with Jacob talking about what it is that went into the large plates. So verse 1, Now behold, it came to pass that I, Jacob, having ministered much unto my people in word, and I cannot write but a little of my words because of the difficulty of engraving our words upon plates, and we know that the things which we write upon the plates must remain. Now, Nephi would frequently use the word write, or the verb write, and here Jacob uses the verb engrave, lends insight into this process because there have been so many times previously where we've thought about what Nephi included and what he didn't include. And the masterful way in which he wove everything together in his record. Here we're introduced to the idea, or at least reminded of the idea by Jacob, that this was not easy and this was not the same as putting pen to paper. But instead, this was a process of engraving and it was difficult. In this light, it's also interesting, as somewhat of an aside, to notice that the next chapter that is to come, Jacob chapter 5, will have 77 verses. So just after Jacob has said that he has to be uh, somewhat sparing in what he provides and in what he engraves, he engraves the longest chapter in the entire Book of Mormon. That underscores the importance, I think, of that chapter. Now verse 2, But whatsoever things we write upon... Anything save it be upon plates, 
and that tells us something that we'll come back to, must perish and vanish away. But we can write a few words upon plates, which will give our children and also our beloved brethren a small degree of knowledge concerning us or concerning their fathers. So we learn from this that there was disposable media, or at least more perishable media, that these people also wrote upon. We get this from John Sorensen. This passage is an oblique acknowledgement that the majority of their writing was on perishable materials. Note that when those who believed the preaching of Alma were being persecuted by the people of the city of Ammonihah, they also brought forth their records which contained the holy scriptures, and cast them into the fire also that they might be burned and destroyed by fire. Paper seems the obvious substance. Lehi and Nephi would surely have been familiar with Egyptian paper made from papyrus, considering that they carried only a minimum of materials beyond their subsistence necessities. Another example supporting the idea that the Nephites used perishable materials in writing is that King Benjamin caused that the words which he spake should be written and sent forth on the spur of the, of the moment to the waiting congregation of his subjects who could not hear his voice. Other media were no doubt also used. One is mentioned, Omni, chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, reported a large stone on which were engravings that gave genealogical and historical information about the last Jaredite king. That inscription was read by the Nephite ruler, and nobody seemed surprised at the idea of writing on stones, for after all, in the Near East, inscribing on stone was common. Moreover, the Nephites possessed the brass plates that contained the five books of Moses, as we came to learn in 1 Nephi chapter 5, verse 11, where surely they read about the stone tablets at Sinai. All the peoples around their homeland were familiar with Stella, or freestanding erect stones, which were carved with scenes involving divinities or sovereigns and bearing inscriptions. Now Jacob continues with this discussion of this record that will go to his children and what it will do for them. In verse 3, Now in this thing we do rejoice, and we labor diligently to engraven these words upon plates, hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts, and look upon them that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt, concerning their first parents. We might wonder why Jacob would mention this as a benefit for his future readers, for his posterity. Surely, uh, Jacob would have understood that of all of the fundamental doctrines that could be twisted by aberrant religions, uh, the doctrine of the fall is chief among them. Here's some commentary from Ogden and Skinner on that subject. However, they will first address something about the media uh, that Jacob and his contemporaries wrote upon as well. As other ancient civilizations also discovered, whatever was engraved on metal plates could be preserved indefinitely. In contrast, our modern civilization for many years has specialized in preserving valuable records on plastic, which has a relatively brief life. Book of Mormon scholar Paul R. Cheeseman wrote that it is evident that a knowledge of any ancient culture writing on metal anywhere in the world was not public knowledge at the time of Joseph Smith. In America, Joseph Smith stood alone in his bold declaration that he had found an ancient record written in an Egyptian language which had been reformed and condensed, a record engraved on thin sheets of gold, a record bound with metal rings, a record placed in a stone box. Every one of Joseph Smith's claims has been substantiated by archaeological evidence and the discovery of items of material culture. After a four-month tour of European and Asian museums, Brother Cheeseman wrote that an exciting feature of almost any large European museum for Latter-day Saints is the surprisingly large number of metal plates or tablets with writings engraved on them. From the Louvre to the Vatican Library to repositories in Seoul, there are hundreds of samples of metal plates, gold, silver, copper, and bronze, that have survived inscribed with ancient languages dating from the 3rd millennium B.C. Metal rings to hold several metal leaves together have now been discovered along with stone boxes to hold plates. Brother Cheeseman wrote that the plates of Darius I, ruler of Persia from 518 to 515 B.C., 
are the closest parallel to the Book of Mormon yet discovered. Two tablets, one of gold and one of silver, were placed in each stone box to be buried at the four corners of his palace. They describe the boundaries of his kingdom, praise Ahur Mazda, the greatest of all the gods, and pray protection upon Darius and his royal house. They were discovered by an archaeological team in 1938. They are now housed in the National Archaeological Museum in Tehran, Iran. Jacob explained his desire to record important events and lessons from his life so that his children and beloved brethren could learn with joy and not with sorrow neither with contempt concerning their first parents. We believe that Jacob's message and example teach powerfully the value of carefully preparing a personal journal so that many generations may come to know their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, so that we can share something with our children that will inspire and uplift and encourage, so that they may have an example of a flawed character, a person with weaknesses, who is nevertheless trying hard to overcome his or her flaws. Now as Jacob continues in the text, and discussing what benefit this record will have to his future readers, his posterity, or his children, as he says earlier. In verse 4 he says, For for this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Well, as we're this far into the Book of Mormon record, it is becoming common for us to read such Christ-centered statements from a people who lived so long before the coming of Christ. But it's interesting to pause and think about just how stunning this is to hear a Jewish person say this. Imagine finding an Old Testament scroll, for example, uh, finding one today with an Old Testament prophet that said, we knew of Christ. We had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. It's an utterly remarkable and paradigm-breaking statement for the entire religious world. In the meridian of time, it seems that prophets did know this. Peter seemed to know this. He said in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Then Jacob continues with this incredible piece of information in verse 5, and also moving forward with this discussion of what benefit this word will have to his future posterity. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name. So lest this get past us without us being amazed by it. He's saying they, these ancient Israelite prophets, believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name. And also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. That is the reason for the law of Moses. This is a great clarifying feature of the Book of Mormon. And for this cause it is sanctified unto us for righteousness, even as it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commands of God in offering up his son Isaac, which is a similitude of God and his only begotten son. So if Jacob is to choose any one example of an ancient Israelite prophet who knew of the coming of Jesus Christ, he would cite Abraham and his offering of Isaac. We'll read a little bit more about that in just a moment. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual says this, Jacob's words indicate that the law of Moses was far more than simply a law of strict commandments and legal codes, as some modern scholars claim. The law of Moses testified of Jesus Christ and led the righteous to sanctification through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Ogden and Skinner offer this, The true nature of the Godhead was known for ages, The Father and the Son were known to be separate individuals, and the Father was worshipped in the name of the Son. That's evidenced in the book of Moses, for example. Even the law of Moses had as its basic purpose to point all souls to Christ. Abraham's near sacrifice of his beloved son Isaac was a similitude of the Father's sacrifice of his beloved only begotten Son. In fact, this is such an impressive and important likeness 
that in the book of Hebrews, Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only begotten son. In addition, the episode stands as a supreme example of the kind of personal, total sacrifice required of all true disciples. The prophet Joseph Smith stated, The sacrifice required of Abraham in the offering up of Isaac shows that if a man would attain to the keys of the kingdom of an endless life, he must sacrifice all things. Elder Bruce R. McConkie wrote, I would suppose that among faithful people in ancient Israel, through all the ages from Abraham's day onward, the favored illustration of the favored text to teach the people that the only begotten son would be sacrificed to bring immortality to men would be the story of Abraham. There is nothing more dramatic than this in the whole biblical account. Bruce R. McConkie says this about the view of the law of Moses that Jacob provides us. Whenever the Lord revealed himself to men in ancient days and commanded them to offer sacrifice to him, it was done that they might look forward in faith to the time of his coming and rely upon the power of that atonement for a remission of their sins. On this matter, the Book of Mormon prophets are quite plain and none plainer than Jacob. McConkie and Millet say this about the same subject. The law was the symbol, Jesus the ultimate reality toward which it pointed. The law was the means, Jesus the end. These simple but pertinent verities are all but lost in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Only through the clarifying and illuminating lenses of the Book of Mormon do we come to know that the law was anything more than a schoolmaster or teaching device. And again, much of that is thanks to Jacob's plain language here when he says it pointing our souls to him. It's a remarkable statement. Now Jacob continues with this very memorable and instructional verse. Verse 6, Wherefore we search the prophets, and we have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Jacob is describing a process here, and in this context he has a unique way of using the word hope. This was commented upon by Robert J. Matthews in a book called Jacob. He says closely associated with having faith is what Jacob calls obtaining a hope in Christ. His phrase of obtaining a hope is more than just having hope and seems to be the assurance or testimony that one has reached a particular state or spiritual condition and a special relationship with the Lord. In all, the word hope appears 50 times in the Book of Mormon and is used by eight different prophets. Jacob, however, is unique in using it in the sense of obtaining a hope, which is an achievement of something beyond simply hoping. And again, that's obtaining a hope, which is an achievement of something. Now verse 7. Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. What things is Jacob speaking of here? Well, it's delivering the word to his posterity. And so he's talking about weaknesses and having them overcome through the grace of the Lord in the very same context that Moroni discusses it in Ether chapter 12 and really that Nephi discussed it at the end of his record when he talked about the weakness of the written word. But in a more immediate sense, when Jacob uses the phrase, these things, he's speaking of verse 6, when he says that we can come to the point after having obtained this hope, that we have an unshaken faith, and can then command the elements, the trees, the mountains, or the waves of the sea, in the name of Jesus. That might remind us of Enoch, really. And so it's quite amazing here that in verse 7 that Jacob would associate such power with God showing us our weakness. Elder Neely Maxwell once said, One thing is clear. In stressful situations, our deficiencies become more obvious. Difficulties sometimes put our deficiencies on display. It is then that we must be especially humble if we are to be made strong subsequently. That's from Elder Maxwell's book called Wherefore Ye Must Press Forward. 
Then this verse from Jacob, verse 8, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it shall be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. This can serve as a wonderful, aphoristic, standalone verse, but it also has meaning uh, in the context of Jacob discussing the power and purpose of the Word and how it is received and how the Holy Ghost is integral to that process between the writer and the receiver. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him, Jacob says in this verse, and At the end of this chapter, he will talk about how he will reveal this mystery, about how it is that the Jews can rise again to prominence once they have rejected Christ, and how that mystery will be made known if he retains his firmness in the Spirit. Well, here's something from Richard D. Scott when it comes to knowing the mysteries of God. There are two ways to find truth, says Elder Scott, both useful provided we follow the laws upon which they are predicated. The first is the scientific method. It can require analysis of data to confirm a theory or alternatively establish a valid principle through experimentation. The best way of finding truth is simply to go to the origin of all truth and ask to res- ask or respond to inspiration. For success, two ingredients are essential. First, unwavering faith in the source of all truth. Second, a willingness to keep God's commandments, to keep open spiritual communication with Him. And that's from a book by Elder Scott called Truth, The Foundation of Correct Decisions. Ogden and Skinner say this regarding uh, this passage between Jacob chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Jacob's testimony is much like Moroni's in the book of Ether. God grants his servants great power to accomplish his work, although he also shows us our weaknesses so that we will be humble and remember by whose grace we are able to exercise that power. Our unshaken faith, which comes by searching the scriptures, receiving revelations, and possessing the spirit of prophecy, empowers us to do the works of God even to the point of miraculous control over trees, mountains, and waves of the sea. Some of the unnecessary understanding of the great and marvelous works of the Lord, the mysteries of godliness, is revealed to us in the holy temple. Now Jacob will continue with these teachings, this hopeful and exciting notion, really, that takes us so far beyond the uh, tone of chastisement that he was burdened with in the two previous chapters, that this is very exciting writing, and it must come closer to the things that Jacob wished that he could have taught earlier. Verse 9, For behold, by the power of his word, man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, oh, then why not able to command the earth, or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? So Jacob is laying out an argument here for faith, and talking about the power that can be tapped into when we access the power of Jesus Christ. It's similar to to Ether chapter 12, really, and also in many ways to Alma chapter 32. But it does run deeper than that as well. And then Jacob says in verse 10, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. Jacob seems to be showing the folly, really, of taking counsel from the or or counseling the Lord once that he has established this. Uh, However, it is something that we still have a tendency to do, oftentimes unwittingly. Marion G. Romney said this. Now, I do not think that many members of the church consciously urge the persuasions of men or their own counsel instead of heeding the Lord's. However, when we do not keep ourselves advised as to what the counsel of the Lord is, we are prone to substitute our counsel for His. As a matter of fact, there is nothing else we can do 
but follow our own counsel when we do not know the Lord's instructions. That is a key piece of insight, then, that comes from the 1985 enzyme, telling us that there are times when we can indeed be guilty of counseling the Lord, even though we'd think that it's something that we'd really never do. Now Jacob, knowing that he has limited space to write in, and we know that his book is much smaller than Nephi's, he's now going to zero in on his own expressions of the doctrine of Christ, and he's going to express it in a, in a different way than Nephi did, but it has some similar elements. He says in verse 11, Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, and ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the first fruits of Christ unto God, having faith and obtained a good hope of glory in him before he manifesteth himself in the flesh. We can remember as we read this that a resurrection of anyone, including the Lord himself, was something that was many, many hundreds of years into the future. Now for us, it's something of a foregone conclusion, and we celebrate Easter to commemorate that event. We know that he was resurrected. But when Jacob was looking at this, it was something that he was looking forward to. However, the point is not to be missed that we still have our own resurrection to look forward to. And the word that Jacob uses here is that we may obtain this resurrection. The idea that we could overcome something as absolutely inevitable as death is remarkable indeed and is tied directly to the atonement of Christ. Jacob's use of the word first fruits, first fruits of Christ unto God, is instructive here. And here's some commentary from Joseph Fielding McConkie and Donald Perry in a book called Guide to Scriptural Symbols. The law of Moses dictated that the first fruits of the harvest be offered unto the Lord. These, considered holy unto the Lord, represent the righteous saints of the first resurrection. These are they who were first plucked from the grave, those who are gathered first to rise from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. We get that in 1 Corinthians 15. And those who arise at the first resurrection are Christ's the first fruits. So we know that that is an expression by Paul, but here in this piece of commentary, it's not to be missed that the law of Moses looked forward to the resurrection simply because of the way that the first fruits of the harvest were offered unto the Lord. Now, verse 12, Jacob says this amazing thing, And now, beloved, marvel not that I tell you these things, for why not speak of the atonement of Christ, and attain to a perfect knowledge of him, as to attain to the knowledge of a resurrection and the world to come? It would suggest to us that looking forward to our own resurrection is an important concept for us and something that we should do. This brings us back to something that came up in the previous uh, audio segment, but this is Alma's great statement in Alma chapter 5, verse 14, when he talks about looking forward with an eye of faith. He says, Do ye exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality and this corruption raised in incorruption? to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? I say unto you, can you imagine to yourselves that ye hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, ye blessed, for behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. Alma seems to be telling us that that's something that we should fixate upon, something perhaps that we should daydream about, that we should project into the future and imagine happening. Jacob seems to be saying the same thing here in verse 12 when he says that we attain to a perfect knowledge of him and attain to the knowledge of a resurrection in the world to come. Out of his book, Christ and the New Covenant, Jeffrey R. Holland says this, Jacob came by his fascination with the atonement rightly, beginning with his father Lehi's blessing recorded in 2 Nephi chapter 2, Jacob was in his youth introduced to the grand concepts of the creation of Adam and Eve, the role of moral agency, the inevitability of opposition in all things, the design and purpose of the fall, the consequence of transgression, the immutability of the law, 
the demands of justice, the gift of mercy and grace, the need for mortality and children, the purpose of probation, and, through it all, the joy of redemption. Now, this memorable verse, and one that Elder Maxwell frequently referred to in verse 13, where Jacob makes this expression that seems to be tantamount to Nephi saying that he gloried in plainness, but Jacob's way of saying it is things as they really are. Verse 13, Behold my brethren, he that prophesieth, let him prophesy to the understanding of men. For the Spirit speaketh the truth, and lieth not. Wherefore it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore these things are manifested unto us plainly for the salvation of our souls. For behold, we are not witnesses alone in these things, for God also spake them unto prophets of old. That central statement, things as they really are, is something to really ponder. Uh, And as I mentioned, Elder Maxwell used to love to refer to this, and I think actually wrote a book with that same title. Yes, he did, things as they really are. The, The beginning of the verse says, let him prophesy to the understanding of men. Now that sounds like Nephi's wish for things to be plain. And then following that up, says that the Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not, because really, that is the only way for things to become plain. And what is something that is plain? Well, it is something as it really is, or things as they really are. And as we've spoken earlier, plainness in Nephi's sense and in Jacob's sense here isn't simply words simplified, but it's words transcended, so that we can come to the same spiritual understanding of the thing that is being described by the prophets. And then Jacob does use the word plainly, saying these things are manifest unto us plainly. And then says, we're not witnesses alone in these things, that this is common knowledge that is held by prophets that have preceded me, saying, for God also spake them unto prophets of old. So after discussing the centrality of the atonement and the atoning act of Jesus Christ, Jacob in this verse has brought us back to the concept of the Word and the power that it carries through the Spirit. Well, here's some beautiful commentary from Elder Neely Maxwell on this verse, and it is indeed out of his book called Things as They Really Are. He says, The adverb really is used only twice in all of Scripture, and then only for exceptional emphasis. The great poet-prophet Jacob underscored the manner in which the Spirit teaches us the truth of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Jacob's declaration about truth is, of course, consistent with the definition of truth given by the Lord to a later prophet, Joseph Smith, when he said in Doctrine and Covenants section 93, verse 24, And truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. Thus, while in A.D. 33, Pilate asked Jesus, What is truth? And the Savior did not reply. In A.D. 1833, he did reply. The true religionist is actually the ultimate realist, for he has a fully realistic view of man and the universe. He traffics in truths that are culminating and everlasting. He does not focus on facts that fade with changing circumstances or data that dissolve under pressures of time and circumstance. The Lord said, Truth abideth and hath no end. And that phrase is out of Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 66. What are the special and central and overarching truths that are numbered among things as they really are? These and others. One, there is a true and living God. Two, there is a true and living church. Three, there are true and living prophets. Four, there are true and living scriptures. It is vital to know that there really is a God, that there really is a Savior, Jesus Christ, that there really is impending immortality for all men, that there really will be a judgment with genuine personal accountability, and that there really is purpose in life and a divine plan of happiness for man. When we know such basic truths as these, then we know what really matters, how to approach life, and how to view man in the universe There is great power in perspective. Therefore, the adverb really, as used by Jacob, is deeply significant. Now, as we have covered these topics of receiving the word through the Spirit, 
of seeing things in their plainness or things as they really are, learning about the centrality of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and a bit about the law of Moses, actually a great deal about the law of Moses and what it centered around. We're now truly ready to receive some explanatory language from Jacob about the state of the Jews during his time, undoubtedly in times past, and in times to come for the Jews. Uh, We're now able to fully understand and grasp what it is that Jacob is going to tell us. So in verse 14, he says this, But behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. So in a way, this has a cautionary tone because Jacob has taken us as readers to places that he probably wanted to take us to earlier, but had to address the subjects that he did in this temple sermon. And he's, he's taught us about how mountains can be moved and trees manipulated and how we can move forward in faith, have weaknesses uh, turn into strengths, and even attain resurrection. But then he's warning us here in a way, telling us that the way the Jews handled such doctrines were to come to a point where they looked beyond the mark. So we're, we're getting this in a cautionary tone, but we're also coming to understand more about these, these people and this group of people that left the central doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ and lost their concept of who the Messiah actually would be. And then also in doing this, Jacob is setting us up for the olive tree allegory which is to come. So with those introductory ideas, let me go back to the beginning again of verse 14 and read it. But behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them. And now we know that that means that they could no longer see things for how they really were. And delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it that they may stumble. This, as an aside, also tells us that our desires have great power. Uh, Elder Maxwell once gave a talk in General Conference about the doctrine of desire. Jean R. Cook said this about the Jews and this idea of looking beyond the mark. Today, there is a tendency among some of us to look beyond the mark rather than to maintain a testimony of gospel basics. We do this when we substitute the philosophies of men for gospel truths, engage in gospel extremism, seek heroic gestures at the expense of daily consecration, or elevate rules over doctrine. Avoiding these behaviors will help us avoid the theological blindness and stumbling that Jacob described. Elder Dean L. Larson, in an October conference session in um, 1987, said that the Israelites in ancient times got themselves into great difficulty because they placed themselves in serious jeopardy in spiritual things because they were unwilling to accept simple, basic principles of truth. They entertained and intrigued themselves with things that they could not understand. They were apparently afflicted with a pseudo-sophistication, and a snobbishness that gave them a false sense of superiority over those who came among them with the Lord's words of plainness. They went beyond the mark of wisdom and prudence, and obviously failed to stay within the circle of fundamental gospel truths which provide a basis for faith. They must have reveled in speculative and theoretical matters that obscured for them the fundamental spiritual truths, as they became infatuated by these things that they could not understand, to use Jacob's words, Their comprehension of and faith in the redeeming role of a true Messiah was lost, and the purpose of life became confused. A study of Israel's history will confirm Jacob's allegations. Turning back to Elder Maxwell again, he said at an address delivered to the Salt Lake Institute of Religion in 1974, This incredible blindness, which led to the rejection of those truths spoken by the prophets, and which prevented the recognition of Jesus for who he was, according to Jacob, came by looking beyond the mark. Those who look beyond plainness, beyond the prophets, 
beyond Christ and beyond his simple teachings waited in vain then, as they will wait in vain now. For only the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us of things as they really are and as they really will be. Now Jacob moves into the spirit of prophesying, and he prophesies regarding the Jews. Now that he has established what he has about the law of Moses and what it centers around, and as he has explained the predicament that the Jews have found themselves in as a result of looking beyond the mark. So he says in verse 15, And now I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying. For I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. This harkens back to an expression by Isaiah, who in describing the Christ said in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul will say, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. In this verse, Jacob refers to Christ as the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. That's the stone that Christ could have been for the Jews had they not rejected him. But instead, he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, continuing in verse 16, But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. That's language that's unmistakably similar to what Helaman will later say in Helaman chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, Remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Paul will famously say to the Ephesians that Christ is the head of our corner, our chief cornerstone, in whom all our building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple of the Lord. Ogden and Skinner explained that the imagery of the cornerstone was so pervasive and of such significance in an Israelite Jewish culture that it forms the core of the great Hallel, and that's in Psalms 113-18, which are sung by Jews at the Passover. Jesus used it in his teachings as well, and Peter referenced it in Acts as well. So this talk of a stone and having the foundation stone and the cornerstone of Christ, that the Jews would have rejected this and that they could have built upon it, is something that would seem very lamentable to a reader that understood these things. So with this terrible predicament in mind, Jacob will now ask this question that sets us up for the great olive tree allegory. He says in verse 17, And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, meaning these people, after having rejected that sure foundation, meaning the foundation of Jesus Christ, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? This question is being asked in the spirit of the idea that someday this can happen. It harkens back to Nephi's discovery uh, towards the beginning of his record that the first would be last and the last would be first. So how could this be, is what Jacob is asking, both on his behalf and on our behalf as readers. Now remember, uh, these Nephites were Jews, and they had a deep interest in their fate. They had a knowledge of the decline of the Jewish culture. Jacob certainly did. He was acutely aware of what the pure law of Moses did for this people and how they had strayed from that and perverted it and twisted it over time. So then in answer to this question in verse 18 and the last verse of this chapter, Jacob says, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. Again, the mystery of the restoration of the Jews. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit, and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. It's a really curious thing for him to say at the very end of this chapter where he's dispensed such beautiful and deep and intricate doctrine. 
and where he's about to tackle something so Herculean in the form of Zenos's olive tree allegory. He's saying he will unfold this mystery to us, but he's actually giving us the possibility that he will get shaken from his firmness in the Spirit. Uh, this, this tells us some interesting things. It tells us, for one thing, that he really, in order to unfold this mystery correctly to us, does need to have firmness in the Spirit. It's also showing us that it's possible to stumble from that state if you entertain feelings of over-anxiety. There are things, apparently, as Jacob is teaching us, that you can do to jeopardize the constant companionship of the Spirit. Now, we know this, and we know that that would be sin. But Jacob seems to be suggesting that you must have firmness of mind, a phrase that he used in the previous chapter. You must have a firmness, and that is a key to keeping the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. If you succumb to doubt, or to fear, or, as he says in this verse, over-anxiety, then you can be shaken from your firmness in the Spirit. May we have firmness in the Spirit, I would say, as we come to the end of this beautiful chapter and move in to the 77-verse olive tree allegory provided by, by Jacob as he quotes Zenos. And so this brings us to the end of Jacob chapter 4. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.